For a brief moment in the 1960s, London, not Paris, was the centre of the fashion world. London was mod, and the fashion world was enchanted by the young people driving the scene. Miniskirts, Chelsea boots and Vidal Sassoon's five-point bob haircut. Britain's youthquake fashion went global. But the moment was fleeting. Maud eventually swung out of style, and with it went London's place as a fashion capital. Attention turned back to the continent, first Paris and then Milan. And by the early 90s, London didn't have much of a fashion scene at all, which made it the perfect empty stage for a troupe of young, rebellious designers to step onto. Following in the footsteps of British designer John Galliano's groundbreaking early collections, these young Londoners built their own fashion world, one that refused to heed traditional rules. Alexander McQueen shocked the fashion community with provocative theatrical runway collections that played with politics and gender. Hussein Shalayan introduced highly conceptual architectural designs that blurred the lines between art, form and function. Stella McCartney led the charge for a sustainable future with youthful, wearable clothes that rejected fur and leather. By the end of the 90s, these young British rebels had literally stormed the castle, taking over some of the oldest and most storied French fashion houses. As the cover of Vanity Fair proclaimed in 1997, London was swinging again. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. All cities have kind of between periods. You know, every major city that's been kind of cool or hip or fashionable or stylish at any point in its history has always had those moments where it's, it's had a kind of more fallow period, shall we say? London, at the turn of the decade, was lying fallow. Mark Holgate, Vogue's fashion news director, moved to the city in 1992. The London that I knew in the early 90s was still... I wouldn't say sleepy, but it wasn't the kind of international powerhouse that it became by the end of the decade. It was still a pretty traditional city. It moved to pretty traditional and somewhat old-fashioned kind of rhythms. London's fashion scene, sleepy as it was, had a singular figure at the heart of it. It's been billed as the gala event of the year, but the big question was, what was the princess going to wear? For a time in the 1980s, it seemed that London's entire high fashion output revolved around the newest royal, Diana, Princess of Wales. While a tribe of underground young designers were creating buzz, another school of British designers developed entire season's worth of clothing with Diana's image in mind. And as Diana grew and evolved, so too did the city's definition of oat style. We were in the height of celebrating the kind of tweets and tiaras and ball gowns of someone like Princess Diana and uh, Sarah Ferguson in the royal family. We were seeing a certain kind of idea of appropriate good taste. Anya Hindmarch, a handbag designer, operated a little shop on Walton Street in London when Princess Diana walked in and single-handedly elevated her profile by buying a little clutch purse. We had a little shop there and one day I was serving a a customer 
Um, and in walked Princess Diana with no bodyguards and no um, no one around her at all. And I did that really embarrassing thing of when you know someone so well, you think they're your best friend. <laughs> so I almost sort of kissed her on both cheeks, which I luckily didn't quite, which just kind of caught myself. But um, And she was so low-key. And it was the start of us making what she used to call her cleavage bags. Really lovely little frame bag with a little twist clasp with little diamante balls that you, you squeeze together, made of satin. And we would always embroider her D, which is what she always wanted. Um, and as she would get out of cars and she leant forward, she would just use it to rather sort of gracefully just shield her cleavage as she got out of the car from photographers. Through Princess Diana, Anya's bags became a hit. But dressing the royals, with all their special attention to dress and decorum, did not make for a vibrant fashion scene. You know, London Fashion Week, I think, had shrunk down to maybe two days. There was hardly even anyone showing. There was hardly anyone coming. You know, there were no international models coming in. They all bypassed London. Britain was reeling from political and economic upheaval as well. The divisive conservative rule of Margaret Thatcher, massive job losses and economic turmoil, and the devastating blow of AIDS. It was exhausting, and the uncertainty forced the more established designers in London either into bankruptcy or to seek their fortunes elsewhere on the continent. You know, it was coming out of the huge emotional and social challenges and, uh, of, of, the, of the end of the 80s and was ready to come alive again. You know, it's, it's when things have been bad and things have been terrible and there's not a lot of light and not a lot of excitement, you gravitate to where it's being generated from next. The place where you could find that light and excitement was the art school called Central St Martins. The fire that blazed in the 1990s at St Martins was in fact sparked a decade before by a designer named John Galliano. John and I were actually classmates there in the 80s when the school was just called St Martins. It was in the heart of Soho, the art department the fine artists were on the top floor. The sculptors, I think, were in the basement. Fashion was sandwiched in between. It was very, very run-down and gritty. Soho, but Soho the way it used to be, full of high life and low life, thespians on every street corner, and working girls on every alleyway. But working girls that wore the trench and shoes that would make Gaga shoes look like trainers today. There was a student union bar where everyone met and that was kind of exciting because you had, you know, artists who included someone like Peter Doig, who was on the fine arts course, hanging out with John Galliano. And so there was a kind of great cross-fertilisation of ideas. And it was very much an extension of club land. It was a see-and-be-seen place, you know. I would go clubbing all night and then I'd go from the club to my first lesson at St. Martin's. We all did that night after night. Soho was a world away from the glitz and glamour of London's high fashion retail arteries. It was a creative hotbed, a place for artists of all stripes to exchange ideas and inspirations. A place for fashion's outsiders to find and collaborate with fellow outsiders. Everyone that I was friends with did have this sense of otherness about them. St. Martin's alumnus and globally renowned designer, Hussein Shalayan. Their curiosity, I think their sense of adventure, um, I think definitely was, uh, was not conventional. You know, we were there to, to challenge social and sexual mainstreams. I felt really so privileged that my comrades are also 
were also uh, thinking in, in, in the same light, even though we were all producing different kinds of work. And what was amazing was that we all had our own territory, but we really respected each other. I, uh, I was lucky enough to, to go to St. Martin's with my brother's girlfriend, who said, you're going to love to see this college. It's extraordinary. Camilla Nickerson is a Vogue contributing editor. And I was a young teenager and she took me in and there were these two guys there and they were like, oh, we're, we're doing our fashion show, you know, tomorrow, would you be in it? And I was sort of quite cocky and I was like, well, if you make me a dress, I'm going to a party tonight. Yes, I will, I'd love to be in your show. And sure enough, they just got this bolt of black fabric and cut it out and sold it into a dress that was like beyond. And it was John Galliano. Born in Gibraltar to working class parents, he arrived at St. Martin's at the height of the New Romantics craze, a bohemian, club driven cultural movement associated with musical acts like Boy George's Culture Club, Steve Strange's Visage and Adam Ant. The New Romantics were celebrated for the wildly creative game of dress-up that they played, one that seemed almost otherworldly. Laird Varelli Person, Vogue's archive editor. Dressing up always makes me think of, like, English country houses and that idea of the costume box in the attic, you know, putting things on, creating personas. I mean, this tradition goes back a long time, but it was, you know, mixed with sex, drugs and, and rock and roll. I was drinking it, living it, breathing it. And I don't know, I guess the, the rabble in me, I was starting to get lost more in the history and illustrations and cartoons, Hogarth, and the way they depicted these characters and often summed up a line. John was a master illustrator and he put his stamp on St. Martin's with his graduate show, Les Incroyables, a spectacular French Revolution-inspired parade of dandified sans-culottes. We put boys in skirts and girls in uh, uh, 18th century looking underwear with waistcoats. And uh, I had sourced the fabrics from upholstery shops and patched them together. And my father helped me drill holes into pennies. Uh, and they became the buttons after I had dipped them in a bowl of salt to oxidize them for that perfect shade of vertigree. The signature piece in Les Incroyables was a type of coat cut on a kimono block. It was designed to be worn upside down and misbuttoned with panels that could be furled up like a galleon's sails. The models added to the effect, hollering and swaggering down the runway, brandishing walking sticks that they raised in the air like weapons. It was electrifying theatre and drew all fashion eyes to Central St. Martins. The school became even better known for nurturing boundary-breaking fashion radicals. It was the very first wave of a British fashion rebirth that would explode a full ten years later, starting with a serendipitous intervention in Cyprus. Well, originally everyone thought I was going to be an architect, uh, including my family. Hussein Shalayan. I was always uh, interested in fashion, but I didn't know at that age how you can study it or the procedure. When I was 17... I read, it was in British Vogue, that Rifat Özbek, this Turkish designer, had gone to St. Martin's. And there was actually this possibility of a fashion career. If you are a fashion designer or an architect, you know, you think in similar ways because you're talking about the body and what surrounds the body. One is much more intimate, the other less. Uh, so my interest in architecture um, Switching to fashion uh, was very natural, and I wanted to work much more directly with the body. 
Hussein's graduation collection included, among other pieces, a series of decaying garments that he'd buried in his parents' back garden and then disinterred, instilling in them a life cycle of their own. A lot of the clothes were kind of what I call enactments. They had this sense of something that happened to them. This is kind of carried on throughout my whole career in the last 26 years, this way of working where then the garment starts to have a sense of life. I feel like I made them go through the event and the details of the garment actually um, marks that event, so to speak. So they're also like these documents of the event in a way. If I were to describe an intellectual designer in London in the 90s, it would be Hussein Chalayan. There's cultural dissonance in Hussein's work. His take on otherness seems more rooted in politics and current events than fantasy. In 1995, St. Martin's graduate Stella McCartney was also a rebel. But while Hussein was a Cyprian immigrant, a self-identified outsider, Stella's rebellion came, as it were, from inside the house. Stella is part of celebrity culture. I mean, I believe at her graduate show she had professional models walking. She was quite a kind of ballsy, self-assured young woman, you know. She had a very unusual upbringing, obviously, because of her father's fame, but also because her parents were vegan and very into sustainability. Stella arrived at St. Martin's with an air of celebrity and the cutting skills of a trained craftswoman. Stella apprenticed on London's Savile Row, the epicentre of tailoring and custom suiting. She'd done these, this wonderful collection, which was these very, very beautifully tailored, big-shouldered jackets, and they were worn over these very fragile little kind of 1930s camisole slip dresses. There was that sense that tailoring, whilst allied to tradition and heritage, could also be a thing of fun and could also be a thing of experiment and fashion. And it could also be, in some ways, played off against Stella's own idea of femininity. While still in school, Stella captured a carefree, youthful approach to dressing that mixed and matched mannish formal wear, covetable girlish lips and pumps. Stella spoke to young women in a way that was very direct and much more relatable, I would say, than any of the other designers. Stella's eye for what appealed to a younger generation of fashion consumers would ultimately take her to one of the most storied houses in fashion. We'll get to that part, but first... Alexander McQueen's innovative approach to couture has earned him a reputation as Britain's bad boy of fashion. He is being talked about and written about by almost everybody. I am pleased to have from London, Alexander McQueen. Welcome. Thank you. Lee Alexander McQueen arrived at Central St. Martins in 1990 as an accomplished craftsman with apprenticeships on Savile Row and with the label Culture Shock and a job assisting Italian fashion designer Romeo Gili already under his belt. You know, Lee didn't just sort of subtly <laughs> creep into the fashion vernacular. He bombarded it. Supermodel Karen Elson walked in some of Alexander McQueen's early shows. Like nearly all of his inner circle, she calls him by his first name, Lee. He adopted the nom de plume, Alexander, so that he would not be identified by the welfare officers when he went to claim his benefits. 
But as Alexander McQueen, he was a different person, a fashion luminary. And there, there's like a time before Lee McQueen, and then there was when Lee McQueen entered the scenes. Unusually for a fashion designer, he's able to combine technical virtuosity with a sort of, with a really high level conceptual complexity. Andrew Bolton, head curator of the Metropolitan Museum and curator of the 2011 exhibit Savage Beauty, a retrospective on Alexander McQueen. You know, his runway presentations were, were, were like avant-garde installation or performance art. I think he once said, like, if people come out of my show and throw up, that's, then I did a good show. He really wanted to provoke deep emotions. And, and create, create scenarios in which people might be uncomfortable. Lee McQueen seemed to delight in finding the edge of fashion's comfort zone and leaping right over it. For fall 1996, Alexander McQueen premiered a shocking collection known as Highland Rape. Featuring torn dresses and skirts and sheer fabrics that exposed the model's breasts and undergarments, the collection was highly graphic, certainly discomforting. The models wore white contact lenses for a glazed-over effect and were encouraged to stagger and stumble as if they'd just been assaulted. It was an extreme presentation. And then his bumpsters, do you remember those? One perfect example, the bumpster pant, was a garment that perfectly encapsulated the collection. It was a very low-rise pant that exposed the top of the model's backside, elongating the torso and appearing as if something was pulling the garment off. Lee wanted you to push the boundaries. He didn't want you to walk out and be pretty. He wanted you to walk out and be provocative and outrageous. I mean, the, the focus wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was on the clothes, but it was also on the experience. You know, he um, created these worlds, these sort of sadistic worlds in a way, these, these kind of, um, how can I put it? There was a, a, a beautiful darkness to everything that he created. The first thing I made for him was very simple. Sean Lean is a jewellery designer who worked closely with Alexander McQueen. He'd seen some antique fob watches that I'd been restoring on my bench with um, antique fob chains. And um, he said, could you make me a load of these in silver? I said, of course I can. Do you want me to make them in a very Victorian style? I said, yeah, I want you to make them exactly like the Victorians. So I crafted these beautiful silver fob watch chains, loads of them. And I had no idea what he was going to do with them, but my very conditioned classical mind thought he was going to hang them in a little pocket on the waistcoat to the side, like the Victorians. He took these chains, he pushed them through the fabrics and the clothes in all different places, through the skirt, from the back of the skirt to the front of the skirt, and some of the chains hang down from the front. There's really another way of saying it. It looked like the string of a tampon. But that was only the beginning of McQueen's provocations. More when we come back from the break. Hey, run-through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, hand-picked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com 
promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. Highland rape created a stir in the fashion community. McQueen had always been known as a provocateur, but many people felt this collection went too far. The theme and theatrical presentation made for an immersive, if unsettling, experience. McQueen was a very special person. Jenny Capitan is a fashion editor and former model. You know, and his shows, I think, were the most elaborate and very thought-of performances at that point. Even if McQueen's shows were controversial, his point of view was deeply personal. McQueen was in many ways troubled by his traumatic past and sought to express that pain and resilience in the face of it through his fashion. His work is extremely psychological and impacted by trauma that he experienced. He had seen his sister being beaten, I believe, and central to his... What he wanted to communicate was a woman that was powerful, a woman that maybe couldn't be hurt. So there was a lot of angst. The shocking use of rape as a storytelling device was a deliberately provocative move. But McQueen, for his part, wanted to tell a graphic and violent story of English and Scottish history. In 1997, he told Time Out magazine that his Highland rape collection was in fact a reaction to what he felt were English fashion designers co-opting Scottish aesthetics, including tartan and plaids, and romanticising England's belligerent historical relationship with Scotland. He said, My father's family originates from the Isle of Skye, and I'd studied the history of the Scottish upheavals and the clearances People were so unintelligent that they thought this was about women being raped. Highland rape was about England's rape of Scotland. He, you know, enjoyed the Englishness that was behind the class system and rebelled against it, but also used it and often became part of his themes in his collections. Andrew Bolton, head curator of the Metropolitan Museum. It's that clash between, you know, tradition and transgression, uh, the past and the present, that, that defines English culture. You know, London was really, was really pushing boundaries and questioning the requisites of clothing, questioning what fashion meant, imbuing it with political connotations. This could have been a step too far in the fashion world, but another English fashion designer, John Galliano, had already led the way. In 1995, Galliano had been hired by LVMH's Bernard Arnault and placed as head designer at Givenchy. And the following year, Arno made him the creative director at Dior. Meanwhile, McQueen stepped into Galliano's shoes, taking over Givenchy in 1996. In the 90s, what John and Lee were tapping into was that clash between tradition and transgression and, and using in, in a way to advance you know, the artistic traditions of, of fashion. In just a couple of seasons, Galliano had taken Givenchy from a staid elegantly conservative house into a headline-generating establishment. And in doing so, Galliano was a catalyst for LVMH to realise the power that a young, innovative designer could bring to a brand, where the concept was just as important as the product. John Galliano and Lee Alexander McQueen had so many similarities, not just their art schooling, but their working-class backgrounds as well. And by the 90s, they were both young British runway designers who, each in their own way, were disrupting the fashion system. 
you know, this competition, you know, between John and Lee would feed off each other and it would create amazing moments in fashion. If you just look back at some of John Galliano's fashion shows during this period, they, they were absolutely remarkable. There is the translation for everyone to have an emotional resonance when seeing it. Tony Goodman is Vogue's sustainability editor. At that time, there were a lot of things on the runway that were simply for show. They were looks that weren't necessarily produced, but they had a, a serious point of view. Like his graduate collection at St. Martin's, Galliano's debut haute couture collection at Givenchy was a bold pronouncement. The future of a luxury French fashion brand was now in the hands of a rebellious young British designer. Galliano announced his arrival to the French fashion establishment with his first haute couture collection for Givenchy. A series of ball gowns that he designed referenced the work of Charles Frederick Worth, a characteristically poetic analogy. Worth was a humbly born Englishman who made a career for himself as a young man in Paris in the mid-19th century and shaped the fashion industry as we now know it. Worth dressed the courts of Europe and Russia, imposing his own vision and dictating changing silhouettes. In the 1860s, Charles Frederick Worth made ornate full-hoop crinoline skirts in luxurious fabrics, and it was that aesthetic that Galliano referenced in his Givenchy 1996 spring-summer haute couture collection. While McQueen and Galliano were weaving stories of Europe's past into their work, Hussein was drawing inspiration from his own history. As a child, Hussein travelled by airplane back to his family's native Turkey and stayed connected to family there by sending many letters to his mother via airmail. In 1994, his Cartesia collection featured a dress and a jacket fashioned from the same type of paper used in airmail packaging, a fabric called Tyvek. The pieces could fold up into an actual envelope. His collection was both directly referential to his own life but also demonstrated this new, multidimensional, avant-garde perspective on the purpose and function of clothing. How fashion lives in the world the way that other objects do. While McQueen and Galliano were shocking the system, Hussein Shalain was provoking deep thought, and that resonated with other provocative artists of the time. And then I started to work with Björk, the singer. Björk wore that white Tyvek jacket, with its red, blue and white postage trim on the lapels of the top, on the cover of her album, appropriately titled Post. Her wearing my piece on her album cover, all of that I think helped gel this movement. People were beginning to be much more experimental. And then uh, we started to slowly see buyers, we started to sell to Japan, then I had a gallery show in Kingley Street um, in the West End in London. Hussein Shalain was self-funded, but he wasn't bound at all in his vision, and thus the pieces in his collections were almost instantly coveted by museums, literal artefacts of fashion. Hussein focused on form as art. He designed clothing meant to provoke thought on how fashion interacts with the world and how advancements in technology can influence fashion. In keeping with his aeronautic theme, he designed the aeroplane dress, a rigid garment made of fiberglass that mimicked the functions of an airplane, with transformative hems as the wings of the plane and adjustable mechanical panels. While McQueen, Galliano and Shalayan were concerned with the story or concept behind the clothes, another Central St. Martin's graduate, Stella McCartney, was compelled by subverting fashion systems. 
I mean, even in my degree show at St. Martin's, I didn't use any leather or fur. Um, when a lot of the fellow students were, actually, they were all, a lot of them were um, sponsored by fur companies. And I found that quite shocking. I didn't realize at the time that they kind of infiltrated quite early on in the system to try and encourage people to use that material. Stella McCartney graduated from Central St. Martin's in 1995 and in 1997 became Karl Lagerfeld's successor at Chloe. So I didn't, obviously. And I, when I got approached by Chloe, I said, look, I'm not going to work in leather. And that was, you know, to their credit, it was incredible, really, that they took me on because everyone knows in our industry that every house is based on leather, essentially. It certainly, at that time and still today, really isn't based on selling clothes. It's based on selling handbags or shoes, and that's leather in, in every company, really, still, sadly. And so they were okay with that, which was a miracle. Stella's work was also informed by her upbringing. Her parents raised her as a vegetarian, and she developed an interest in environmentalism early on. Meanwhile, her parents' idiosyncratic style was another profound influence on Stella's fashion aesthetic. I had very fond memories of going through my mum and dad's wardrobe and finding all these Chloe pieces. In my mum's things, there were some beautiful like scarf, silk scarf tops that were actually quite sexy. Lovely use of colour, really beautiful use of material. The fabrics were memorable. The prints were lovely. Very nicely designed, actually, that Carl had done, and they were beautiful. So I knew the brand and I knew its heritage. And so not only did I know the pieces hanging in a wardrobe, more impactful than that on my memory bank was her wearing them and how she was when she wore them, how she turned into a slightly different side to herself. And that's worth a huge amount for me in the design process. My real inspiration was this, this sort of psychological connection between what you wear and who you are and how clothing and fashion can actually bring out the best in you and make you feel better. And I remember who she became when she wore those Chloe pieces. And Stella thought about the Chloe woman of today and what she wanted to wear. I was just trying to serve a purpose. I wanted everyone to wear my clothes. I wanted them to provide an emotional need for women of that time. I wanted them to feel comfortable. I wanted them to express themselves through what they were wearing. And I wanted to serve a purpose. I wasn't trying to shock anyone, really. And I wasn't trying to editorialize my work. I was trying to bring my work into a woman's wardrobe. I just wanted to design clothes that I could wear and that all my girlfriends could wear. Mm. And they were, and they did. And that became quite powerful. And so it was more, what do, what do we want to wear as, as young women? And, and how do we want to feel? And, and also just shaking it up a bit. You know, it was a Parisian house. And I remember going there and they were like, you have to put a sleeve on everything. And I was like, and so I intentionally didn't put a sleeve on anything. <laughs> We were rebellious. I felt like I had nothing to lose, but that was quite naive and foolish because I didn't, I honest to God, didn't think anybody would even notice my going there. I really, you know, it wasn't, I, I wasn't at all in the, in the industry. I'd literally just come out of college. I look back and I think, you know, naivety is, is just so powerful. What Stella McCartney called naivety could also simply be called the unflinching power of youth. When you don't know the rules and you don't care about them, there's no limit to what you can create. I think there are always going to be designers that are very unflinching in their look at the world and what the world is like. 
and what it means to be a creative person navigating that world and creating fashion. They don't see fashion as something that's divorced from the light and dark of our world. The young London designers of the 1990s broke the rules because they wanted clothes to be a part of the world we live in, and they wanted their designs to interrogate our world as well. I think London designers always feel empowered to follow, I guess, their sense of the world as much as their sense of fashion. You know, I think there's a, there's a kind of, pleasure is not quite the right word, but certainly a belief that fashion isn't just really about pretty frocks and pretty clothes. Youth subcultures will always be a powerful force in fashion. The energy and allure of youth is undeniable. But the youth design culture of the 1990s was particularly strong because it tapped into the meaning of fashion. I really still believe there's been no subculture movement since then that's had such a big impact on how we think about fashion and how fashion is perceived. Clothing's fundamentally about transformation and transforming yourself and expressing yourself and, and being true to yourself and confronting people. So I think when it's used in that way, when it's used in a way to celebrate individuality in whatever form that takes and a way to confront the gaze, the gaze, whether that's the straight gaze, the male gaze, I think that's where fashion is, is, is most powerful. The power that the London designers harnessed in the 90s, that youthful drive to express yourself and be different, and the power to use fashion to create your own rules for living in the world, was now harnessed to a new global platform. Just as the young British artists were breaking down barriers and reinventing their world, London-made fashion designers in the 90s changed not just the fashion world, but perhaps the way we all think about our clothes forever. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Waltz. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman, mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. Vogue.